Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. I talked in a prior episode about the idea of striking while the iron is cold, that sometimes it's actually preferable to not address a subject while emotions are high and opinions are flying in every direction. I'm doing that again with this episode and with a few more that are still to come. When I saw the comedian Dave Chappelle creating conflict between the black community and the transgender community, two communities that actually overlap, it was disturbing to me. Trans citizens and black citizens in the U.S. are two communities that cope with a great deal of discrimination, prejudice, and systemic oppression. The folks who do the damage to the trans community are cis people in power, not black people in power. And the folks who do damage to the black community are white people in power, not trans people in power. These are two groups that I would rather see working together to end oppression which to some extent is a shared oppression, because there are black trans people. Both communities are gatekept out of systems of power and authority. Both are targeted through legislative efforts to strip their rights and make their lives more difficult. Both face social hostility that can be lethal for different reasons. It's not the same oppression, and it manifests in different ways. Still, Neither community is provided the same respect, opportunities, and access to resources as their oppressive counterparts. In response to the division I witnessed that included a loss of some of my friends on social media, I decided that I would try to do something to help promote solidarity. I reached out to four people, two white trans women and two cis black men, all of whom have been on this program before, and I invited them to sit down for a coffee and have a conversation to discuss topics they chose as a group. It ended up being several conversations and many hours of recorded material, and I've decided that the only way to handle the content is to break it into separate episodes based on topics. Some of the folks I invited had trepidation, but in the end, everyone was pleased with the meetings and the conversations, and I'm excited to be able to share some part of that content with a wider audience in order to show that differently oppressed communities can still work together with a common goal of ending oppression. What follows is a portion of the conversation with my former guests, David, Harper, Joseph, and Natalie. I had plenty of conversations when I was in groups where it was like, hey, gay people are welcome to be in the groups, but this is an atheist group. If you're an atheist and you're gay, you're welcome to be here, but don't expect us to make any special room for you, to make room for people. These people would say, well, look, if a person is super homophobic, but they're an atheist, why should I do anything to discourage that person from being a part of my atheist group? I mean, you don't have to. I can't make you tell that homophobe to go off. But, like, gay people are not going to show up at your event anymore. You can't say, well, we're welcoming to both homophobes and gay people. That's not how that works. 
Well, and the reality is there's nobody sitting at that table who is straight phobic. So they don't have to deal with this and they don't expect to deal with it. And in their space, they're totally safe as far as their sexual orientation. But when you tell them they should make sure that it's also safe for other people who aren't straight, suddenly that's a special accommodation. It's like, well, no, the person coming in and making it unsafe for them is a special circumstance that you don't have to deal with. The space is safe for you as a straight person already because you're the dominant culture. And all they're saying is, can it be safe for me, too? And you're saying, well, no, why should it be safe for you? And it's like, well, I don't know. It's safe for you. They don't want to do the extra work. But, yeah, it's extra work to put me in the same position that they're already in. Exactly. And it's like if they don't want to do that extra work, like I can't make them. But then they can't then be offended that I don't consider them a safe person to be around or like a friend. Of course, I'm not going to consider that to be a safe place to be. That's the situation that you have in these spaces when people say, why should I have to go an extra mile to make it safe for you? They're not really processing that the more dominant culture identities you have, the safer every space is already for you. It is just designed safe by the fact that you are dominant in the society on a power level. When I go somewhere, I'm not going to be attacked for my race. But I will be dealing with microaggressions and problems because of my gender. The question is, if people that are in that room who are men don't have to deal with gender oppression, why should I? And what they're saying is, why should we have to intervene to make sure that you're not attacked for your gender? And they're sitting there not attacked for their gender. And I'm just saying, why should I have to sit in a space where it's hostile to me for my gender? Why should somebody have to sit in a space where it's hostile to them because they're trans or because they're black or because they're disabled? Why should somebody have to sit in a space where they aren't made to feel welcome? And none of that is ever a problem for you. And you think it should be a problem for me? Why should I have to deal with this crap that you don't ever have to deal with? I think I should be able to walk into the space and not have to deal with this crap either. Just things that like low-key I'll deal with as being a trans person all the time. Like I'm out at a restaurant and I need to go to the bathroom. I'm looking around to see who is standing in front of the bathroom. I'm walking in and I'm instantly aware of who is in the bathroom. I'm hyper aware of whether or not those people look at me or not. And it's not even that anybody might be doing anything to give me pause. It's not like I might not even get any sense that there's anyone there like a fossil to my presence. But I'm still super hyper vigilant about just going to the bathroom because I want to make sure that someone's going to clock me as trans and then like, how are they going to react to that? And in the ladies room, is that going to be a big deal? And I'm lucky enough to live in a relatively progressive area of the United States conservatives think that the Bay Area is like a socialist mecca, which definitely isn't the case. But most of the time, most people don't recognize that I'm trans, don't care enough to really look, but I'm still always a little bit aware of that. Definitely even more so like when we leave the area, we go on Christmas a lot of times to visit Megan's parents and they live in Phoenix. I'm definitely way more conscious even there. This is a more conservative area, and it's also an area that I'm not familiar with, and I don't know the places that I'm going as well. I'm sure it doesn't even occur to most of the people in her family. It's not that they're transphobic. It's just it doesn't occur to them that that's a worry. This is our favorite restaurant. We go here all the time. 
but you don't know what the owner or the management or that waiter thinks. You've never set them down and asked them what their opinions are on the LGBT community. The atheist activist community, I would say, in general, that I've had been involved with and followed for years after becoming an atheist and latching on to that as my kind of community, as I kind of lost my own community, is I've found that there's a form of gatekeeping that happens there. It used to feel kind of invisible, but now it's becoming more overt. But you commented on a post where they were boasting about the diversity in that community. You were questioning that, like, is it really as diverse as you're saying? And you're bringing up experiences where minority voices try to raise some flags and uh, they're just being shut down and they're being attacked with hostility. Their voices are really not being heard. And the message is, if you're not cis, white, male, we're not so interested in in what you have to say and and how you're impacted within this community and all that. That is like a form of indirect gatekeeping where nobody is saying only whites may apply or, or no blacks allowed or no trans people are allowed. But the environment is is so hostile towards people that find themselves in those positions that you have to be willing to absorb all that hostility, to be ridiculed. If you're trans, you have to stomach all these debates about whether or not you should be allowed in sports or if you should be allowed to uh, use the bathroom. The painful discussions to watch people of privilege have before yes. your eyes. And then when you try to give your two cents and to be dismissed as like, you're from that community, you know, they don't treat it as you having a unique perspective to bring to the table. They treat it as, well, you're emotionally compromised because you're from that community. Like we have a better rational take on it. People, after a while, they leave those communities. They say, we don't want a part of this. You're hostile to us. It hurts me to be here. So we're not going to take part in it. And then it stays white. It stays cis. They will allow people from the minority groups, if they come in and assimilate into the dominant culture and the dominant culture perspective. If you're a black person and you're saying, well, yeah, a lot of those other black people out there, they're saying race, but I don't think it's as bad as they are saying, and I know you guys are good people, and that sort of idea. Or if you're a trans person and you're saying, well, you know, yeah, I kind of have a problem with some of those things too. Then suddenly you can be part of it. It's a kind of assimilation thing. If you can reach what they consider standard or have the ideas or ideals that are more in line with that dominant culture, then you get to stay with us. But if you are going to be a minority and also be an advocate for your people in that kind of way, then we don't want you. They kind of like having that token person. You know, that one black person could have seen this happen or that one person in the trans community or the gay community that they can say, oh, well, that person is in our group, so how can we be, you know, they'll have a friend. How can we be bigoted, as you say? There is some motivation for them to get diversity in inverted commas. In other words, the token that can speak for them so that the gatekeeping then becomes not really necessarily just for the person who's in that marginalized group, but also the person who is going to advocate in a way that is going to make their whiteness or cisness seem less desirable, or even maleness in some case, they don't want that person there. I call that a faux diversity because those tokens are only being used as a shield. They're being used to, well, we're not racist because one of our leaders is black. Yeah, but you're using that black leader 
to reinforce all the racist ideas that you have. You just happen to found one that is either willing to go along with it or actually believes those things for, for some reason. But that they don't represent the communities of that color. They represent an individual. So is it like, yeah. in the end, it's kind of like, is it really diverse? You know what I mean? Like, I wouldn't consider Fox News diverse for having Candace Owens on as a guest. Yeah, yeah that was a name. That was, that, that was not going to come. But yes, yes, of course. Yeah. Candace Owens is exhibit A for that. She's black, but her, as, yeah. as far as I understand, her all her values are white supremacist values. She's used to gatekeep as well. You can't say we don't have black people at our conferences because... There she is. It strikes down that argument. And she's a prominent person in our community. She's evidence that there's no uh, racism. Like a black woman can succeed. That's truly the case. And they love these people, you know, in in that case. That really does put you back because you want to tell them, you know, listen to more black voices and that's what we want. But they will say, well, what about this one? And then they will accuse you of having an agenda to only have the black voices that you want. That's the way that they spin it. It's a strategy they use and it is, it's unfortunate. It is really not just the people, but the ideas in the dominant culture that they are protecting and keeping against other aspects that are out there. And so long as people who are who believe like them or who think like them are in there, it doesn't even seem like they're gatekeeping necessarily. It seems like everything is okay. When I was part of that, a lot of the atheist communities here, I never really realized the hostility that was there against marginalized groups because I never really questioned them. The conversations never really came up because we weren't dealing with those issues and we, we didn't have people coming in on a regular basis that were marginalized and who were, who were bringing these. And so it's easy to not even recognize that this is what is there. I think about even the conversation I had the other night with the guy on one of these forums where... I wonder if I would have gotten all the his true feelings about inclusion if I hadn't pushed him a bit in terms of that kind of conversation. It's often I find when you get the pushback that you really see the hostility and the, the mm-hmm. real almost a desperation to keep out certain elements from the groups that they're part of. In a sense, the more gatekeeping they do, the easier it becomes to keep it that way. Well, kind of one of the ways that I look at it that is helpful to me is that little saying that I always post, which is, if my black friend tells me it's racist and other black people say it's not, it's racist. And if my black friend tells me it's not racist and other black people tell me it is, it's racist. If my goal as a white person is to not do racist damage to people in the black community, I should just stay away from anything that does damage to anybody in that community as much as I possibly can. What happens is you have different levels of privilege, even within communities. And this is what's interesting is they'll say these communities aren't homogenous. And it's like, yeah, I know they're not. There's some people within those communities who have so much privilege, they hardly see anything as harmful. It's hard to get them to say that anything hurts them. But then there's other people that are in that community that are struggling so hard that they feel the pressure of everything. For me, as somebody outside of that community who's responsible for a lot of that damage, or all of it, really, what I need to say is, where is that damage causing harm? 
And where do I need to understand that to back off or to be more understanding or to be more helpful or to be less harmful? And part of what happens is you'll have some situations where within the community, someone will say, this isn't racist because this doesn't bother me. And what they're really saying is, this doesn't hurt me. But they can't really speak for people that are in a different situation, even within their own community, because it's not homogenous. I was on a jury selection one time, and the attorney explained something that was a really interesting thing. It was something in the law, and it means that you can't choose your victims. If I decide one day that I'm going to go downtown and mug three people for money, and I go down there and I do violence to these three people, I push them down onto the ground and maybe punch somebody, and I'm grabbing wallet and a purse and whatnot, and I run away and I take the money. If one of those people has a heart condition and they die as a result of that assault, even though the assault itself wasn't lethal levels, I'm responsible for that death because I mugged somebody with a heart condition and they died as a result. Tracy doesn't just get to say, I only meant to mug healthy people. When you go out to mug people, you're mugging whoever you get your hands on. And if you happen to get your hands on somebody with a heart condition, that's too bad for you because you are now responsible for what happens. Because when you just go out to the public and start mugging, you're going to mug whoever you get your hands on and you are responsible, not the person's condition. Because had I not mugged them, they would still be alive. And this is how it works in my mind with these communities, with all of these communities. With my own community, for example, of women, if somebody is badly abused or sexually assaulted within a relationship and they come out of that, there's going to be things that they're more sensitive to that are more harmful to them that aren't going to have the same impact that they have with me. I can look at a thing and somebody can say, is this a hurtful thing or is this a sexist thing? I can say that when I look at it, I don't see it as hurtful or I'm not hurt by it, but I can't say how it's going to impact somebody else in the community based on their experiences and how they're going to internalize that. I can sometimes predict it based on what I know about other people and say, well, I'm not personally harmed by this, but I know some people who have had this experience that are within this community. And for them, this is going to be pretty hard. This is going to be rough. So I wouldn't do this if I were you. What I can't do is just erase somebody else's harm. I can say what hurts me. I can say, yeah, this is hurtful to me. And this amplifies my feeling of sexist oppression when you put that in my face. But what I can't say is that it's going to do that to the woman standing next to me. And I can't say, if it doesn't hurt me, that it's not going to hurt the woman standing next to me, because I don't know what her circumstance is. And when you start doing sexist damage, when you start throwing that sexist power around, I don't know who it's going to hit and how it's going to impact everybody. The problem becomes when somebody within a community says that they want to speak for other people about what doesn't hurt. And that's where I can't speak. I can't say this doesn't hurt people. I can only say whether it hurts me. And if I say it hurts me, then I know it's hurting me. If somebody else tells me it hurts them, they're telling me it hurts them. But I can't say it doesn't hurt me, so therefore it doesn't hurt them. That's ridiculous. That's the reason that the statement of harm takes precedence, because I can't tell who has what levels of privilege within the community and who's going to be impacted by what. A person who's Black and has spent time in the justice system and in prison is going to have an entirely different take on what racism looks like, as opposed to somebody who was raised in, for example, we talked about a majority black nation and went to school, got their PhD, became a lawyer. That person is still going to experience levels of racism, but it's going to be very different in the way it manifests and in the way that it impacts the person. 
Going back to something that you said earlier, what well, was the point that you were making about how, yes, like somebody from a marginalized community might not find something hurtful that other people or maybe even the majority of people in that community do find hurtful. But you also noted that sometimes there's so much privilege that somebody can have that they can't see how something can be hurtful. I think a lot of people in the apex position of privilege, they, they might have come up with some philosophy, you know, like sticks and stones, they break my bones with words will never hurt me. And this kind of even toxic masculine way of dealing with your feelings. You're supposed to just have things roll off your back. But what really ends up happening, I think, to a lot of people is they just suppress stuff until it rots away at them. That's part of the dominant culture is like, learn how to take a hit and all that. And I think in every culture, that's what people generally do. You learn how to survive elementary school. You learn how to survive the kids on the street. You grow some kind of thick skin to navigate all those environments. And they see that systemic issues like people responding to racism, somebody responding to be, being called the N-word, for example. They don't see the N-word as anything different than being called like a... Like, well, or you know, asshole, like yeah. calling somebody yeah. asshole, right? I mean, yeah. it's it's not nice, but it doesn't come with social power behind it. It's not a target on the back of an entire demographic. Yeah, I've had white people say to me, like, call me a cracker. I don't care. Like, that doesn't hurt me. That was kind of black people's attempt at sending a derogatory term back at white people. But it had this no institutional power behind it. If a black person was angry enough to call a white person that to their face, how much is that going to really hurt that person? They'll be like, right, what it's, did you- it's not the same. And, and I mean, even in the conversations that we were having behind the scenes before we did this call, there was a mm-hmm. lot of stuff being thrown around that impacted each of us in ways that we have privilege. So there was negative yeah. commentary being made in the thread by everybody, basically venting. When uh, you or David or any of my friends who are in the black community want to vent and say like, oh, white people are so frustrated. I don't get all defensive and say, oh, my God, you know, you said white people. And how can you? It's, it, no, I understand where that's coming from. There's a lot of frustration there. I get it. And I also get that that's a power position for me. Just because I have a situation where I might experience sexist depression doesn't mean that I don't have white privilege. And when I've got that privilege position, you calling me out for that privilege is not hurting me. People who pretend being called out for a privileged position is exactly the same as being targeted based on a disempowered and denigrated position in society don't understand at all what this is about. This idea of it being equal on both sides is one of the things that hurts us. If I can't call you the N-word, you can't call me cracker. A lot of times when we were growing up, we were encouraged to have that thick skin as black people. You know, we've got to be able to overcome this. And that came from everybody. It meant that the systemic racism wasn't really addressed. Because what was addressed was that it doesn't matter how bad it gets. We have to be able to get over it. That was seen as an attribute to us, like a virtue that you can overcome this. And therefore, the times when we were unable to do that, when we couldn't overcome the institutional racism that was there, we were seen as being weak, even sometimes by people in our own groups. And that, again, is something that stops you from having the confidence to go back there again because you're thinking that, no, 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 it's not the racism that is the problem. It's me that needs to be stronger. And that's the way that our societies have often done it. Well, you know, anybody can make it if you work hard enough. And I'm beginning to realize that those kind of messages actually really work against marginalized communities. Because we have to recognize, not just recognize, but emphasize, I think, a lot 
that this is no even on both sides thing because people still struggle with that. I figure, well, if I can handle it, he can handle it. Another thing I get to sometimes as a person with some privilege in the black community, as you know, I've been educated, done my PhD and, and live a sort of maybe not the average black person life in the world. When I start to talk about some of these things, people will then say, well, this doesn't happen to you, so why are you talking about it? And that is another thing that you have to push away because I, I recognize that the people who are really the most vulnerable in our communities, they don't get platforms like this. And we have to, therefore, as privileged within our marginalized communities, we have to speak out and we have to be bold in that. But at the same time, we do get that pushback, well, it's not you. And then we also have to remember that when we're speaking that we don't, that we don't forget those that don't have a voice because it's easy for us to speak on racism and how it affects us because that's our personal experience. But... There are a lot of others out there that don't get a voice. And I was thinking, you know, in, the, in this panel, we have black and trans. But of course, the real vulnerable people in the society, the black trans, which are really the doubly marginalized, you will be hard pressed to get them on a panel. I'm not sure if I've ever heard anyone from that community on a podcast like that. I mean, there are one or two that have spoken to personally and I know that are doing some great work. But it is harder for the ones that are really heavily, heavily marginalized. And so the only difference that we can really make is to use our privilege sometimes to make that difference. I'm not sure that people always see that, but I recognize that, at least from where I sit, that what I can do as a marginalized person is to use some of the privilege within that and also you know, privilege in other areas, as you said, you know, by being male and other things like that, to get the word out, to speak in a way that maybe some will listen to. The real stories really are from the people that we're not hearing. Persons that really need the help, the real vulnerable. You know, we talk from our experience because that's what we know, but at the end of the day, it has to be to try to get to the point where those that are even more marginalized get a voice. I pulled this quote because I think it's a great example of the difference between the privileged position and the position that's disempowered in the society and why it's not the same. This is a quote from a guy named Anatole France, who lived in the 1800s. He died in the early 1900s, 1924. But this quote is sarcasm. The law in its majestic equality forbids the rich as well as the poor to sleep under bridges, to beg in the streets, and to steal bread. This is such a great statement about the inequity of equality, the idea of saying that these laws apply just as much to the rich as to the poor. Clearly, they target the poor. Clearly, without a doubt. When somebody says that it's just as racist to use a racial slur on me as a white person as it is to use it on a black person, this is what they're not getting. The law that stops somebody from sleeping under a bridge is just as oppressive to wealthy people as it is to poor people. It's so ludicrous. This quote lays it bare in such an obvious way. It's like telling a disabled person who is in a wheelchair that, well, you know, the stairs are there, like for you and me, but they can't get up those stairs. We don't have a sign that says you can't enter if you're disabled, right? So you're just as welcome as anybody. And if you don't come, I guess that's on you. Well, you don't have a ramp. This reminds me of in Canada when our politicians were debating um, marriage equality. This is one of the arguments that was turning up in the conservative campaigns, you know, is that everybody has the opportunity to be married. There's no discrimination there. 
before marriage equality was passed, only people assigned men at birth and people assigned women at birth were allowed to marry each other. That was it. But they, right. they actually campaigned on like this idea that it would, I don't know, that, that the wording would trick people into thinking it was actually equality. The example of disability is really a good one because you've got people that are privileged sitting inside saying, well, this person in the wheelchair is looking for special accommodations here. They want us to install this ramp and they want special treatment. None of us are asking for special treatment to get in the building. And what they don't realize is the building is already built to accommodate them. This mm -hmm. other person is saying, I would like to be equally or equitably accommodated. I would also like to be able to enter the building like you all have set up the building for yourselves to enter it without a problem. So they're not really asking for anything special. They're saying, I would like the same access you all have to this building, but you built it in a way that blocks my access. There's all kinds of ways to quote, build stairs. So if you have to walk into a space that's predominantly white, Nobody in there is getting attacked systemically based on their race. There are no institutions set up against them to drive them into poverty, drive them into prison, drive them out of housing because they're white. So when they exist in this space, there is no assault on their race. And when somebody comes in and they're not white and they sit down and suddenly racist stuff starts being said, all they're saying is, I would like to be able to sit in this space and not have my race crapped on either. Y'all don't crap on each other for race. And then when I walk in the building, why do I have to put up with this hostility? I shouldn't have to. Part of the problem is when you have that diversity within the community, there are going to be people that walk in that are not white, that are going to be able to be comfortable in that space, even if there is some casual racism being thrown around. And they're going to be able to tolerate that. Uh, yeah, I roll it, but whatever, not a big deal, doesn't really hurt me. I know these couple of people just sometimes say these off-color things, but all they're really doing then is saying that the person who is marginalized, who can put up with our racist crap and not make a big deal about it, is welcome. The person who is marginalized and tells us when we're being racist is the one making drama, being sensitive, causing a problem, asking for special treatment, I don't think anybody should have to put up with any amount of racism from me. And I don't think that that's too much to ask. I think that people should be able to tell me when I do or say a racist thing, and I should be able to address that by adjusting myself to be less racist, as opposed to pretending that it's the fault of the person who's bringing it to my attention that they're somehow being too sensitive. Instead of comparing them to my friend who never calls me out on it, who really isn't doing me any favors, I need to, it, well, let me, I want to take that back. It's risky to call somebody out on their racism. So I'm not going to put that on my friend who's not telling me because maybe my friend who's not telling me just doesn't want to deal with the crap that they always have to deal with when they try to talk to a white person about racism. I think that's a very important point. When you are the marginalized person and you find that other marginalized people are kind of saying, well, you know, he he's just like that or she's just like that. That's just how they are. I can handle it, so can you. It makes the person who was calling it out feel the need to also comply with the other people there. So you get discouraged from doing what is basically a good thing, which is to allow people who are there to understand the hurt that is coming towards you. And also sometimes to the other person who is saying there's no big deal. Because as I think Joseph was saying, sometimes even us that have a little bit of privilege, we don't always 
say exactly how things are hurting us. And this just keeps the dynamic to let's be quiet. Let's not ruffle anyone's feathers. If we want to get ahead in this society or in this world, we have to be able to go through this without saying anything about it or accepting it. That just lets the thing keep going. But if we can be in a place where all of us think, look, everybody wants to be as least racist as possible, we should be encouraging people to speak up. And that's not what's happening. And then once we do that, then we might be able to get that unity we talked about where marginalized people will back each other up in conversations and in situations. But so long as there's this dynamic where there's at least a number of people who think, well, maybe it doesn't hurt me, so it shouldn't really hurt you. The person who is really trying to do the good by speaking up doesn't get that behavior reinforced. That's the dynamic I wish people would see. If I'm okay, but someone else in my community is hurting, then there's something we need to do. It's not like, well, because I'm not hurting somehow that devalues that other person or what they're saying. It's, again, a way of dismissal, not hearing people. People who play that role, that token role willingly, they usually end up getting kind of ostracized by the communities that they're yeah. coming from because they're toxic to it. We end up being suspicious of them and their motives and angry at them because they're hurting us more and they're validating the perceptions of the privileged people type of person that, that can't understand how being called a name can really do any real damage. When we're talking about race, I think a lot of white people kind of see it like that. Like, okay, it's just a word, the N-word. People have called me stuff before, you know, just get over it. But they don't realize how it hurts. They don't realize all the ways in which it can hurt and how it affects our health. All they just see it as is like, okay, it's just like a scrap we get into in the schoolyard when you're growing up. You take some punches and, and you move on. But they don't have any experience with any systemic pressures keeping them down and attacking them and their health from all sorts of different directions and, and all sorts of different ways. Even when we talk about it from the perspective of, well, wouldn't you want to do less harm? Like, yes, just because a Black person says that, well, these kind of things don't hurt them from the community doesn't mean that other people from that community won't be hurt by it. But to the person of privilege, they want to use that Black person as the token. In their point of view, this isn't significant enough to hurt anybody. Now I found a Black person who's saying they're not hurt by it. Well, this is a decent Black person that I can respect. You, you understand what I mean? They're shopping for a conclusion. Yeah. I find the whole process results in a natural form of gatekeeping. A white space is never going to just be overrun by token Black people that it becomes a Black space. It's always going to be just a handful of them, never enough to like be able to amount some power together or whatever. So they're, they're going to be the bulldogs for the, the privileged group in charge of keeping their own people down. If I tell myself as a white person that, oh, this or that, that's not racist. I don't believe that's racist. I disagree that's racist. And then I go around just shopping it to black people that I know until I find one that says, that's eh, not a big deal. Yeah. Now I've yeah. got a black person that's telling me it's not a big deal. And what happens is that person ends up welcome in the space. I mean, that's what you're saying, Joseph, because that'll be the person sitting at the table that then makes me pat myself on the back and say, look how diverse I am. I have a black person at my table. Now, there's other times when a person can be marginalized and be invited into a space where they actually have good intention. It's not necessarily mm -hmm. a situation where somebody is agreeing to do something harmful or shares harmful views. Sometimes a person can go into that community thinking, I can make changes from within. And so they can end up being in there working really hard in a system that may or may not be amenable to change, still being used as a token. So this person is actually capable, is actually got their heart in the right space, but they've been brought in to an organization that really isn't going to be amenable to change. 
They think they're doing a good thing. They think that they're working towards something positive internally, but ultimately there's going to be a cap on how much change they're allowed to make because the upper echelon of the organization is simply not going to shift. Yeah, and in that yeah. example, it could be used as a token in the form of meeting a quota to boast diversity, for example. <laughs> they might not necessarily be actively trying to be a token because token is something that you don't necessarily agree to be the token. You just can be used that way, like against your own will. Well, white people will tokenize a person of color any chance they get. There's always going to be a situation where there's going to be somebody that's white that is willing to step up and use a person of color as a human shield, as a bludgeon. And that's something, unfortunately, that I see a lot of times on the left. We're talking about race here, but it could be anything. But basically, they don't really care about racism. And then they see a conservative being racist, and suddenly they're there to support the Black community or the Indigenous community or Asian community. They're willing to step up and support you, but only if they can use you as a cudgel to beat these conservatives that they don't like. Yeah, to upset the Trumpies or whatever. You know, I, I realize that too. That's very disappointing when you realize that people don't really care about the actual person that is there. Because, you know, a lot of times, yeah, we go in with a real need to change something and we really want to do it. But people, they will listen, but it's listen not to take action, not to do anything differently, but just to say, hey, look, the black person talked. And I have been there. And I do realize that, yeah, because the conservatives are beating us over the head with the racism, it's like, okay, we're going to show them that we're the opposite. But it seems to be more important to show that I'm not racist than really actually to be anti-racist or not racist. And we live in a world now where it seems that more than ever, the importance of being seen to be a certain thing is so, so, so important that just wraps up the amount of tokenism we see and you know people wearing the color or saying black lives matter on their profiles when really all they really want to do it's not really for us it's for other white friends to say hey look at me i'm done with these kind of uh, things or areas that people want help in but they're not really 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 wanting to change and that's disappointing but it is so much of the reality can i read a quote from malcolm x before i go on this is a 60s language, so bear with me when I get through this. It says, the white liberal differs from the white conservative only in one way. The liberal is more deceitful than the conservative. The liberal is more hypocritical than the conservative. Both want power, but the white liberal is the one who has perfected the art of posing as the Negro's friend and benefactor. And by winning the friendship, allegiance, and support of the Negro, the white liberal is able to use the Negro as a pawn or tool in this political football game that is constantly raging between the white liberals and white conservatives. I just thought of that when David was speaking just now. They give the awards when you do the things they want. The pick me person, you get all yeah. the cookies. <laughs> if you're in a marginalized group and you will come and stand with the dominant culture and the oppressive culture, if you will get up there and be present for them, you get the gold star. I'm really glad that you mentioned the pick me people because you know, they exist in the trans community. There's a meme that I really like. I think it encapsulates this. This person is saying, hey, I just want dignity and respect, basic human rights. And I'm a woman. The antagonist is like, well, this trans person says otherwise. And then the pick me trans person is like, no, I'm mentally ill, yada, yada, yada. 
just reiterates that narrative that supports that power structure. And then like, see, it even says I'm right. You're like, oh my God. But those people exist too. And it, I will say, tends to be white trans women who get the privilege of transitioning younger or having access to gender care younger. And they blend into society. We call it passing privilege. And passing is a problematic term because it means you're passing as something you're not. It's cis passing and it applies to the cis observer. So it's not like somebody who is trans is trying to pretend Mm -hmm. to be something they're not. It's that to a cis person, they look like what a cis person Mm -hmm. codes as cis woman or cis man. And that's all it means, Mm -hmm. right? It's not passing in the sense of trying to pretend to get by as something you're not. It's just that you look cis to other cis people. I actually enjoy the term blending. I like to use that more. But if you look like a cis woman, then you now have access to all the same safety. And this isn't to invalidate cis women's struggles, but men open the door for you instead of slam the door in front of you. Right. Nobody gives you a hassle in the bathroom. Yeah. Yeah. I get specifically guys tend to be hostile towards me or they're nice to me at first. And then when they finally clock me, their disposition changes right away. If you are someone who has access to those things, then you also benefit from reinforcing that power structure. If you never had to have access to facial feminizing surgery, it makes sense if you're an asshole. You're told that the more trans people who have access to your space, the less that you will be protected as a trans person. And so they either kick down or whatever. It instantly allows a trans person to go from second to the bottom of the tier to way higher up on the tier you get to start just being a white woman instead of this person that's been depicted in movies as psycho killers and just dressing as women to access women's spaces and do bad things well and i want to be sure to note that there's a lot of effort and cost and expense and struggle and stress that goes into somebody getting past dysphoria especially if someone has it badly I don't want to minimize. It's not just like someone wakes up one day and says, I'm going to look (laughs) more like society codes women so that I can have all this privilege. That's not how it works. I don't want to give the impression that just because somebody ends up doing what they need to do for themselves and that that results in some benefits, that's not some kind of an indictment. It's just a reality. I'm glad you pointed it out because that's something that didn't even dawn on me as a trans person, right? And I want to take one side step. Not all trans people have dysphoria. Everyone's experience is a little bit different. You don't need dysphoria to be valid. Gender euphoria exists. But myself, looking through the lens of dysphoria, that is something that doesn't cross my mind. That I would go through all this pain and suffering just to step up in the world. But it is something that happens. And if you're in that position of power, you're told by the power structure that if you want to maintain this, your position in the world that you need to reinforce back to what we're talking about gatekeeping, you need to reinforce these ideas, these Eurocentric ideas of femininity and beauty. I'm glad you pointed that out because that's something that a cis person would think of and would never cross my mind. To think that someone would go through all this crap just to like level up air quotes in the world. I just wanted to be clear that people need yeah. to understand someone goes through a whole lot and it's really for themselves that they're doing it. Yeah. 
And it's just a byproduct that socially they are going to access levels of privilege now, but nobody should accuse them of doing it for that reason. It's just a byproduct yeah. of what's going to occur. Not that it would be wrong of anybody to say, I don't want to be harassed all the time. And, yeah, you know, I don't want to have horribly. to live under constant anxiety of murder. <laughs> right. So for whatever reason somebody does what they need to do to get by in life, the fact is cis people have privilege. And if cis people think you are also cis, they're going to share that with you. The thing about it is cis people are born with it nine times out of ten. Sometimes there's cis people that don't really reflect the social codes for gender. And there are people who are trans who have to go through a hell of a lot to be happy with how they look and that sometimes that results in coding uh, in a way that cis people tend to, as the dominant culture, expect someone to look as a man or woman. And if Mm -hmm. you fall into that category, whether you intended that or not, It's just you have an easier time getting by in life. You're not going to be harassed as much. You're not going to be at as much risk. But you still had to pay a much higher price than somebody who just happened to be born cis. Even if you were to be able to navigate the society in a way that people coded you as male or female and you had no problems, you were never misgendered, you were never harassed, you still had to struggle to get to that position that some people are just born with. And I think about that sometimes. I think about it a lot that I'm having to go through all this stuff just to get to where some of my friends take for granted. The question was, what could allies do better? Stop taking their experiences for granted. People think, oh, you you came out and now you're living as yourself and you're happy now and everything is good now. And there's always this level of dismissiveness of how hard we have to work to feel ourselves, to feel complete. Just to get to the starting level that cis people get to enjoy walking on the world. Yeah, from the time they're born. I have friends and I love them dearly and they mean well so much, but they don't understand the amount of lost time and the big hole in your life that leaves having to wait so long. People think, oh, you were a boy before and then now you're just a girl or something. And they just think your experiences, you were okay with the thing. And it's like, no. I made the reference on Facebook one time. I was like, hey, you know, like I never, no one bought me any flowers until I was in my 30s, you know, my mid 30s. And everyone's like, ah, everyone needs flowers. The point of that wasn't flowers are gendered or something, you know, like, yeah, buy your boyfriend or husband or non-binary partner flowers. Flowers don't have a gender. Everyone loves flowers. But the point was simple things cis women take for granted. And maybe even don't care about. That's fine too. But the childhood lived experiences are just giant vacuums of us staring across the room at other people, getting to be themselves while we have to live or hide out of fear so that we can have access to a roof and food. And then having people who've had other bad things happen to them use that bad thing in their own life that you feel bad happened to them to invalidate your own shit. Those things never come back. You can't get that time back. It's fucking gone. I'm over here arguing for trans kids. I think the biggest part about that is just, I wish wish someone would have fought like that for me. People don't realize, they don't see it as a big deal. They don't see it as that important. Starting from X time moving forward, I get to finally be myself. And then I have to go through the whole grieving process of all this lost time. I wish that allies would stop minimizing the hurt that we have or 
well, at least you didn't X or something, you know, stop invalidating the things that we're like having to go through because these are experiences that you've never experienced. For this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring. <laughs>